So we're going to continue our look this morning at the uh, book of Romans. So if you have your Bible, you can turn to chapter 11. Uh, If you don't have your Bible, you can look at it in the bulletin. We have printed it in there for you. It's in the New Living Translation, which is a paraphrase, but it's a very good paraphrase and maybe a little bit easier to understand if you're not familiar with some of the language in the the other texts. We hopefully, I'm hoping to complete Romans 11, two parts today and next week. It's a long chapter, and so uh, uh, please stay focused. We're going to read the first 18 verses. Next week we'll do the balance uh, of the chapter. Uh, But now hear God's word. I ask then, has God rejected his own people, the nation of Israel? Of course not. I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. No, God has not rejected his own people whom he chose from the very beginning. Do you realize what scriptures say about this? Elijah, the prophet, complained to God about the people of Israel and said, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I am the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me. And do you remember God's reply? No, you're not the only one, Elijah. I have 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal nor kissed his feet. It's the same today. For a few of the people of Israel have remained faithful because of God's grace, His undeserved kindness in choosing them. And since it is through God's kindness, then it is not by their good works. For in that case, God's grace would no longer be grace. What it truly is, undeserved. So this is the situation Most of the people of Israel have found the favor of God. They are looking for so earnestly. They've not found it. A few have, the ones chosen, but the hearts of the rest were hardened. As the scriptures say, God has put them into a deep sleep. To this day, he has shut their eyes so that they do not see, closed their ears so they do not hear. Likewise, David said, let their bountiful table become a snare, a trap that makes them think all is well. Let their blessings cause them to stumble and let them get what they deserve. Let their eyes go blind so they cannot see and their backs be bent forever. Did God's people stumble and fall beyond recovery? Of course not. They were disobedient. So, God made salvation available to the Gentiles. But he wanted his own people to become jealous and claim it for themselves. Now, if the Gentiles were enriched because the people of God turned down God's offer of salvation, think how much greater a blessing the world would share 
when they finally accept it. I am saying all this especially for you Gentiles. God has appointed me as the apostle to the Gentiles. I stress this, for I want somehow to make the people of God jealous of what you Gentiles have, so I might have. Sorry. So I might save some of them. For since the rejection of Israel meant that God offered salvation to the rest of the world, their acceptance will be even more wonderful. It will be life from the dead. And since Abraham and the other patriarchs were holy, their descendants will also be holy, just as the entire batch of dough is holy, because the portion given as an offering is holy. For if the roots of the tree are holy, the branches will also be holy. But some of these branches from Abraham's tree, some of the people of Israel, have been broken off. And you, Gentiles, who were branches from a wild olive tree, have been grafted in. So now you also receive the blessings God has promised Abraham and his children, sharing in the rich nourishment from the root of God's special olive tree. But you must not brag about being grafted in to replace the branches that were broken. You are just the branch, not the root. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I'm sorry, it's a long and really an incredibly beautiful argument that the Apostle Paul is making. He's summing up the relationship that God has with the people of Israel. This is the ethnic Jews, the Hebrew people that remained in the land back in the time of Jesus. And he is talking about what the entire book of Romans is talking about, what I've tried so uh, hard and rigorously to get across. This book is a letter. It's not a theology, a systematic theology or anything, although it's, it is absolutely rich in doctrine and propositions of truth about the gospel. He's writing a letter, and what he's trying to do is tell people in a church in Rome, like us, God is faithful. He will not fail. His grace is sufficient. And He Himself will uphold us. We are not upholding ourselves. It's not by our works. It's by His grace. By His grace plus nothing. Even our faith is a gift from God. It is a response to God's graciousness. It is not something that we have inside of us that we bring to God. God is faithful and therefore it gives our faith, as meager and as small as it may be, gives it life and strength. That's at the heart of Christianity. That's Christianity 101. Trusting Jesus. Now I have in my backyard, I have a fig tree. Some of you have been in my house, you've seen the fig tree. It is the fig tree that Jesus cursed. And uh, it went like years before I ever got a, one fig. Now it's producing pretty good. I think it's because Dawson is here. <laughs> uh, I'm kidding. Uh, this fig tree was a cutting from my dad's fig tree. My dad's fig tree was a cutting from his dad's fig tree. His tree was a cutting 
supposedly, the legend goes, from a tree that was brought from Lebanon, from Syria, by he and his brothers and his, uh, the rest of his extended family. They brought these cuttings with them when they came, grapevines and trees, olive tree, amazing. These, you know, back in the day, you could actually carry them. Ugo would never let that happen today, right? You, you never get, a, get away with that, but yeah. Yeah, so they brought these trees and, you know, they would plant them and then people would make cuttings and off you'd go. Because a branch, if you don't graft it into another tree or get it in the ground and you don't care for that little branch, what's going to happen to the cutting? It's going to die. And so Paul is using this extraordinary illustration of how we uh, are kept alive as we're connected to the root of the tree and our relationship to the, to the root of the tree and Israel's relationship to the tree. It's really quite amazing. So 9 through 11, he's talking about Israel and he's talking about God's faithfulness to Israel and also to the Gentiles. That would be most of us. Now, if you have Jewish, uh, Jewish uh, heritage in your background, that's wonderful. Uh, but most people that Paul dealt with were Gentiles. He even called himself the apostle uh, to the Gentiles. God's absolute love and faithfulness and goodness and grace and mercy has been extended to sinners. And we don't cut ourselves off and graft ourselves in. He does that. And all through 9 and 10, he was pretty hard on the nation of Israel. Here, he starts being a little bit more specific about the, the, the group of people, the Israelites, and drawing all these threads together. And I tell you, it's an amazing chapter. It can be a little confusing, and you can see 18 verses. I even had a hard time reading through it. So let's look at a few things here this morning very quickly. We're going to look at God's absolute and eternal faithfulness. That's what Paul is communicating. We're going to talk briefly about God's election, predestination, of God's people. This can cause a lot of heartburn for people because it seems unfair, but he started chapter 9 with election and he's finishing chapter 11 with election and there's a good reason for it. We're also going to look about what Paul says is God's purpose, listen, in both election and the hardening of the people of Israel. What is behind all that? Fascinating. And finally, we'll talk about God's grace and our humility. And so let's, let's go uh, right into this. Look at verses 1 through 6. This is the first section. We're going to take them in, in some bigger chunks. God is faithful, even and especially, listen, even and especially when it seems Otherwise, he could look at Israel. Jesus was a Jew. He comes to his own people. His own people reject him. And it seems as though the promises are going to fall apart because this ethnic nation would not receive their king. And so Paul is bringing up a good argument. He's saying, God, look at the people. They're not coming to him. Is he unfaithful? Has he rejected his people? 
Of course not. Or no, it's an emphatic. Look at me. I'm an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, Benjamin, Elijah. Then he tells a story of Elijah, how Elijah went in, uh, it's in 1 Kings chapter 18. He goes and he complains to God after the miracle on Mount Carmel. The people didn't accept God, even then. And Elijah goes away despondent, and he goes into a cave up on Mount Sinai, and he says, Lord, look, there's nobody left. It's just me. You know, he's whining, he's crying, he's complaining, just like we do. There's nobody faithful. Look at our country. It's going down the tubes. Look at our world. It's in such a disarray. Only I am faithful. Only our little church, Christ the King, which is true. Only, <laughs> only, <laughs> only, the, only me. And God says to him, your presumption is ridiculous. I have 7,000. It's a representative number. I have 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And in the Old Testament, in 1 Kings, it says, nor kissed his feet. You see, they had these statues. And if you wanted to uh, do obeisance, you would come, you would bow your knee, and you would kiss the statue's feet. No, I have 7,000. It's foolish in the extreme, to accuse God of unfaithfulness. And folks, this happens so much in our lives. Things go sideways all the time. Something doesn't go right, or somebody prays and you don't get the answer to your prayer, or whatever the case may be, you think you ought to be well and you get sick. You think you ought to have money, but you look in your checking account and there's nothing there. You, you, you're lonely and there's nobody around. And you think, where is God? Is He faithful? Is He true? How come my circumstances are not better? Why am I the only one suffering this way? Why am I the only one who hurts in this particular way? And what God is telling us, no, I am utterly faithful. And if we as Christians don't have an eternal perspective Life can be bitter and hard and cruel. You've got to look beyond this life. The Bible is completely rife with analogies and illustrations and promises about the next life, the resurrected life. Not a life floating on clouds in heaven, but a life here on earth. Revelation 21 says God is going to come back down with the new Jerusalem and we are going to be with Him forever in a rich and vibrant, verdant world of glory and goodness and peace. If you narrow your vision only to this life, you're going to be disappointed. And Christianity, frankly, will make no sense. But if you look beyond this life as, an, as, as the, the front step, the stoop, into that grand mansion of glory, then the promises of God become amazing. Foolish to accuse Him of unfaithfulness. There is a remnant, look at these last verses, a remnant chosen by grace. And then he defines grace and one of the, I don't know, nobody can define grace better than this. If by grace, it's not on the basis of works, has nothing to do, you can't contribute to grace. If you try to contribute to grace, he says, it's grace no longer, it's not grace anymore. 
Grace is not a help. Uh, you know, I'm wearing boots this morning. It's got a little hook here in the top so I can pull it on because I'm fat and I can't bend over. I need that hook so I can get it and pull it on, right? No? You guys are terrible Texans. Okay. So, you know what? Grace is not a hand up. It's not a help up. It's not a prop. Grace is the basis. It's the foundation of everything. Faith is not what saves you. Grace, grace saves you. Faith is the response that you have and I have to the grace that's been shown to us. This is real, true Christianity. As Sue Griffin said in our, our Sunday school, she's killing it in there, folks. You need to go in there to the Sunday school. I mean, never mind. She's just amazing. It's not grace plus something. It's grace plus nothing. Faith is just only as good as the object in which we place it. It's only in Christ. Christ alone. In theology, when you go to seminary, you learn all these big words. And it's kind of cool. You can learn them, you know. But let me give you a little theology. Maybe this will help. Grace is the basis. In theology, we call it the efficient cause of your acceptance to God. So grace is the cause. It's the efficient cause, the effective cause. It is the thing that makes salvation happen. Not create the possibility that it might happen, but absolutely causes it to happen. You could not otherwise be saved. You contribute nothing to that grace. It's God alone who is faithful. And he, I don't know what He does behind the scenes, but He causes regeneration and new birth in the heart of a person. And the response to that is faith. Your faith does not cause God to be gracious. Do you hear me? Please respond. Your faith can't cause anything. Your faith is nothing. It's not a substance. It's not a commodity that you have and you carry around with yourself like a muscle that you've got to build and it's you know, something you've got to you know, get and then you come and bring that to God. It's a response. Death becomes life and life sees, the, 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 the dead sees the living and it believes. God doesn't believe for you. He doesn't make you believe. None of that. He doesn't create faith. He's faithful. So faith is, grace is the basis. Faith is the means and what in theology we call the instrumental means. In other words, grace is the basis and faith stands on top of that, can you separate? R.C. was asked millions of times in his, in his uh, professorship and theologianship that he uh, was one of the best theologians this country's ever known, this world has ever known. And, and R.C. would be asked, what comes first? And without hesitation, he would say, grace comes first. Got to come first. But faith happens almost instantaneously with it. That you can't separate them, in other words. You don't, 
And we can separate them to talk about instrumental and efficient causes and all. That's what systematic theology is. But folks, in your life, you don't think about all this. You look at your life and you say, will I trust this God? Even when it doesn't look like He's being faithful. And for us, the answer must be, yes, I don't care what the doctor, I don't care what the bank accounts, I don't care what political party, I don't care what is happening in this world, I will trust Him. And as a sign of my trust, I will go and invest my life in that which is good and beautiful and righteous and true in this world. Because God's not going to discard it, He is going to regenerate it. Amen? The same way He regenerated me, He is going to regenerate this world, a new creation, a new Jerusalem. And He Himself, the book of Revelations, with emphasis, He Himself will wash away every tear. He will wash. Can you imagine that? You're going to take all your hurt, your pain, your sorrow. What are you going to do with it in this life? Nothing. But the Psalms say that God catches those tears in a bottle. He remembers. His memory is absolute. And when you are there and you have realized the grandeur and of the graciousness and faithfulness of God, He will wipe away those tears. Not erase your memory. Redeem your memory. There's a huge difference. We're not going to be blanked out. We're going to remember our sorrows. We're going to have a Savior in whom you can look at His hands and see the scars. If He wanted to erase our memory, there would be no scars. No, we're going to remember. We're going to remember all of it. And the pain and the anguish and the appetite and the hunger and the sorrows. And immediately wiped away. This will give rise to what we know as the beatific vision, the glory of Jesus. You look into His face and you say, oh my God, I could spend eternity thanking and praising this God. Yes? There you go. So God's eternal faithfulness. Look at 7 through 10, this next little chunk here. He's going to talk about God's election and this phenomenon of hard-heartedness. Now, I know Calvinists were often, you know, were often uh, accused of, well, you know, God doesn't, we don't have free will. You're saying that we're robots, that we're puppets, we're this and that. That's just a terrible misunderstanding of election, predestination, God's sovereignty, and all that. Terrible. And if you want to learn more about that, you need to come to our Sunday school classes. And, and we've got one in here, we've got one in there. Dawson and I will meet with you. If you have questions about how these things fit together, there are good answers. Look at what Paul said about election. Again, he's finishing up this 9 through 11, these three chapters talking about Israel. He's bringing up election. Most of Israel has not found God's favor that they looked for so earnestly. You see, they, were, they really tried. They wanted to be right with God, but they wanted to be right God, with God on their own terms. Like the prodigal son. The prodigal son came to himself in the pigsty, and he says to himself, 
This is going on in his mind. Oh, my father's, I left my father's house, but over there they have plenty to eat. Even his slaves are living better than me. I know what I'll do. I'll go to my father and I will say to my father, I've sinned, I've done wrong. Make me like one of your hired servants. I'll come back. Make me like one of your hired servants. He was setting the terms of his salvation. The prodigal son, even out of the pigsty, had the audacity to make up in his mind, I'm going to go to my father and tell him the terms of my salvation. What happened? (laughs) He didn't even get the words out of his mouth. The father runs to him, throws the robe of righteousness around him. The the father's robe, this robe that represented rightness and goodness and, and the father's own substance, puts his ring, the father's wealth, the father's identity, everything on this son. He doesn't want him to work for him. He doesn't want him to be a hired servant. He wants him to be his son. That's what he tells us. When you look for that earnestly, you're not going to find it. It's only going to happen when God steps in and wakes you up in the pigsty. People say, well, look, the son had to get up and go. He's like, yes, of course. But why did he come to himself? And I ask you this all the time. Why are you here? Why are you in this room? And I don't care what anyone says. You can say, well, you know, I've been, I'm hurting. I need to find God. Why? And I would argue till my dying breath that the only reason anybody ever turns an eye towards God, the true God, the God that we're describing in this Bible, is because by the divine initiative of His sovereign grace, He comes to us in our death and He breathes life. And our response is repentance, faith, and new obedience. 100% you. He didn't do any of that. All he does is bring back the dead and give you new life. Um, Now that should absolutely engender a kind of worship unknown in most of the church. Yes? A worship that is beyond our... We could stand in awe. God who came down. He didn't just throw out a life preserver for me and say, catch me, catch me if you can. This God dived into the water and went to the deepest and darkest place of the water where you were dead in your sins. And He brings you up and He breathes life into us And then we get cranky and say, well, how come he doesn't do that for everybody? Why did he do it for you? That's the question you ought to be asking about election. Why you? Why me? Why anyone? When in the garden, we collectively, Adam was just a representative of what we became and what we are if we don't orient our life around God. Yes? There's just no other way. And he reminds people that it's our hard-heartedness that has kept humanity away from God. It is only his kindness and election that softens our heart. Otherwise, you can take credit for it. 
And I don't want that credit. I don't deserve that credit, and it's, I know that it wasn't me. I was on my knees at 18 years old by the side of my bed with a pistol, and I was going to blow my brains out. And I have no explanation other than God's intervention in that split moment that I chose Him instead of death. And if you're honest, folks, you look at your life, there in that moment, He had to be there first. Yes? There's no, you don't, He doesn't come down when you call Him, He's already there. It's crazy that we want to give ourselves credit for something that we could not do the death. R.C. used to say, dead people don't believe. Dead people are dead. They don't have faith. He makes us alive. And that's all the doctrine of election is, folks. It's not about your choices. It's not about any of that. It is God's work alone. What we don't deserve, we get. Mercy. And he says this. A few have found grace, the chosen, and the elect. He makes it very clear. It's not because they're Jews. It's not because of their ethnicity. It's not because of the way they behave. It's not because of anything other than God's faithfulness in election. The rest of Israel was hardened. What is hardening? It's deep sleep. It's the blind eye, the deaf ear, the snare, the trap that human beings are confined in. And love. Make no mistake. We love to be blind. There's an old saying that my sins always look worse when somebody else is doing them. Do you understand the power of deception? If Satan could deceive Adam and Eve, how good a job do you think you're going to do against that kind of of, uh, shrewdness and evil? He talks about our work in this verse. He says, our work gets us justice. God's mercy provides grace. God's work creates mercy and grace. Our work, we get justice. And again, my professor, R.C., who I love, I will always love him forever, would say, you, nobody gets injustice. Do you hear me? No one gets injustice. Nobody is going to be in hell without choosing to go to hell. And if they look up into heaven, Dr. Gerstner used to say, the people in hell are going to look up into heaven and see heaven. And like like the rich man and Lazarus, they're not going to ask, oh gosh, I wish I had accepted Jesus. I wish I'd have prayed. I wish I'd have listened to Chuck. I could be up there with all them. Look at how much fun they're, they're saying. Look at what they're doing. No. The rich man didn't say, oh, I wish I could be saved. He arrogantly tells Abraham, send somebody to go tell my brothers so they won't come to this awful place. He knew it was awful, but he didn't ask to be removed. He didn't ask to leave that horrible place. C.S. Lewis says we're in hell because we want to be there. 
every opportunity has been to this earth from day one in the tree in the garden of good tree of good and evil and the good tree of life every opportunity god has graciously poured out to his people and what do we hear it looks pretty good i think i'll take a bite i want to be like god God hardens. God's hardening is just a magnification of what is already there. He's not responsible. He's not taking people who are morally neutral and making some elect and some hard. He is simply the person in whom our heart is hard towards. Yes? Okay, some receive mercy, some receive justice. Nobody gets injustice, no one. So what is God's purpose? Very quickly, look at these verses, 11 through 15. Again, we're taking some big chunks. But what he is saying in 11 through 16, I tell you, my head is is still spinning from spending weeks looking at this. At this little section, these few verses. What is God's purpose in election? What is His purpose in hardening? What is all that? What's going on? Is He just any, mini, miny, mo? I like this one. I don't like. Is He just arbitrary? No. All of that is more grace. Lots more grace. Look, did God's people, Israel, stumble? And fall beyond recovery? Of course not. Through their disobedience. Look, it goes from a bad thing to a good thing. From a bad thing to a good thing. This is the the artistry of literature and the the reason Apostle Paul is the Apostle Paul. It's amazing. No, did they stumble beyond? No. Through their disobedience, bad thing, salvation was made available to the Gentiles. Good thing. Why? To provoke Israel to jealousy. Good thing. So that they would want what the Gentiles have. Wow, look at the Gentiles. They're doing well. We need, to, we need to return to our God. This was our God before. Now they've got Him. We should go back and, and return to Him. Salvation is available to the Gentiles. To provoke Israel to jealousy. Good thing. So, look at these verses, 15 and on. Since Israel's rejection of God meant that God offered salvation to the rest of the world, who's that? The Gentiles and everybody, all human beings. There, the Jews' acceptance will even be more wonderful. You see, their rejection is not going to be able to be compared to their acceptance. Now, in dispensational theology, if you don't know what that is, you can talk to Dawson or me or one of the elders, but... Because of the nation of Israel, the, the uh, uh, political state of Israel today, we think that that's what Jesus is ta- that that's what Paul's talking about. That someday he's going to restore Israel to its future glory and all of that. Uh, I don't personally believe that's what he's talking about. It's not that you know. It's just not part of what I see in Scripture. But if you do, then it's okay. Uh, just know that you're entirely and utterly wrong. No, but you ought to come talk to us because there's a lot of confusion about that. 
No, it's, it's life for the world. You see, Jesus came to his people. His people rejected him, so he goes to the Gentiles. Gentiles did re- accept him, and he promises that the Jews will come and accept him. It's not going to be an either or, it's both end. Because he's intent on saving the world, Gentiles and Jews. If these descendants, Jews and Gentiles, are holy, then the entire batch is holy. That's Jews and Gentiles. Just like the portion. So then he comes to the root. What God meant for evil or what, the, what people meant for evil, God meant for good. So he takes these few verses and he just says, even in the midst of this very confusing and this whole business with Israel and that, you know, the temple being destroyed and this and that, God remains faithful and he turns every evil thing to good for those that trust him. So, Finally, what's God's purpose or uh, God's, what about God's grace? 17 and 18, let me finish with this very quickly. If the branches are broken off and you, a wild olive tree, are grafted into a nourishing root, do not be arrogant toward the branches, towards Israel. Remember, remember. It's not you who support the root. The root supports you. Paul is saying in a very pointed way, there is no room for pride and hubris in the life of a Christian. Humility defines us. Humility. Augustine was asked by his students, I've told you this numerous times, what was the Augustine, what is the greatest virtue, Christian virtue? Humility. Oh, okay, I understand that. What's the second greatest? What do you think he said? Humility. Oh, okay, what's the third? Humility. Even true love springs out of a humble heart, not thinking you're better than others. Paul destroys any notion of pride. We come to him with our heart in our hands exploding with gratitude and thanks. Folks, in Christianity, listen to me very carefully because we're in a, we're in a world right now that is absolutely crazy and polarized. Everybody's polarized. Our denomination, the PCA, is polarized. If you come tomorrow at Probably around 2, 2.30, you're going to hear some arguments you will not believe. Right? And we're holding on because we know what's coming. This world is defined, listen, us versus them. You can go anywhere and any, any it's us versus them. And I'm going to tell you right now, the gospel says it's us versus him. We have sinned. We have fallen short of the glory of God. There's no us versus them. Us 
versus him. We don't support the root. The root supports us. What in the world is he talking about? Well, if you were a Jew or even understood anything about the Old Testament, you would have known immediately what Paul was talking about when he said the root. He's talking about the root of Jesse. He's talking about Isaiah 11, about the coming Messiah, which we sing every year at Christmas, and the restoration of God's kingdom, because the kingdom comes when the king comes. And the king came on Christmas morning, and he was accompanied by his army, not a choir. That army of angels was the, Lord, was the host, the army of God. And they had their shields, and they're banging on their shields, and they're chanting a war cry. Glory to God in the highest peace on earth. In other words, we've come to accompany our great king. And Isaiah says this. There shall come forth a root, a shoot from the stump of Jesse, a branch that shall bear fruit. In that day, the root of Jesse shall stand as a signal or a banner, a flag for the nations of him, the nations, the goyim, the Gentiles shall inquire and his resting place will be glorious. Who's your root? What is your root? Who is he? It's Jesus, the root of Jesse. Will you trust him? I hope you will. Father, thank you so much for your kindness and your mercy. I don't know why any of us are here today other than your grace and mercy that you brought us and you've invited us to come into your presence with singing and joy and to eat a covenant meal around your table. That's what we're going to do. We thank you for your Son, our Savior. In Christ's name, amen.